Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So just like on all of these, I'm just really excited to have all these speakers on here. And while we're going, all panelists, feel free to jump in at any time. Um, the only thing that I asked in terms of the microphone is, you know, responses and everything. Feel free to respond, et cetera, without raising your hand. But please keep mics muted while someone else is talking. We had some issues with uh, Echo on previous ones. So just try to keep cognizant of that but now i'm going to go ahead and go through our panelists when i call your name feel free to shout out anything you're working on plug anything you got coming out uh so starting off we've got jem karsan thank you again for coming always love having you here big volatility expert founder of kai volatility which you all should be subscribed to incredibly passionate educator in the options vol and flow space as well as one of the best traders around hope your vacation was good jem how are you doing today doing well good to be back stateside thank you guys for having me uh if anybody wants to Tune into what we're writing about lately, uh, kaivolatility.com backslash news. Uh, you know, you can get a quarterly uh, newsletter that we just put out as well as uh, kind of weekly um, kind of things that we're putting out there. Perfect. Thank you so much again for coming. Last Bear Standing. The Last Bear stands strong against rising equities and has been a great force at showing deteriorating market conditions. Last Bear is an expert in Chinese real estate, and he has an incredible newsletter you should also already be subscribed to. Welcome back, Last Bear Standing. How you doing? Thanks. Good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to the discussion with the panel here this morning. Um, I have a, a sub stack that you can subscribe to from my Twitter page um, if you like what I have to say. So thanks again for, for having me here. Thanks again for coming, man. Love having you here every time. Next, we've got Martin Pelletier. He's a portfolio manager at Trivest Wealth Council and often columnist for the Financial Post and an avid skier. Welcome, Martin. Wow, good to be here on a bright and early, or dark and early, Calgary morning. Looking forward to participating. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming. Ben Hunt, a well-known individual on Twitter. Ben's the founder of Epsilon Theory, one of the greatest newsletters studying game theory and history generally, and was great voice for markets, memes, and jokes during January 21. Subscribe to his newsletter, and welcome, Ben. Oh, thanks, Nichols. I've, I've got to get you to do all my intros. That was, uh, that was super. <laughs> glad, glad to be here. Really exciting. Thanks for coming, man. Next, we've got Pedro da Costa. Needs no introduction at all. He's a Federal Reserve correspondent and heat of policy for the Americas at MNI Market News. He recently interviewed Rajan about the Fed's QT could trigger a liquidity crisis. A must read and listen, truly. How are you doing this morning, Pedro? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So I guess we can kind of spiral right into this. CPI comes out in about half an hour here. So the first question is going to go to the whole panel. With gas prices going down, food costs moderating, and rent potentially flattening, what do we think the CPI print will be, and how will the markets react, knowing all predictions seem kind of silly in retrospect? Let's start with you, Jim, and work our way around the panel on points that come up. Yeah, to, to your point, last, uh, I think it's important to note that, that last month, right, we got a, we got a soft reading, um, but the core was, was incredibly sticky. And um, despite the initial kind of um, kind of pivot talk and excitement that, that we got uh, around that, we we ultimately saw the, the market retrace. Right. Uh, and, and we saw the 10 year 
yield go higher afterwards. So, um, you know, the initial response is I don't think what's important. The, the headline number is not what's important. That, that should be coming down. It uh, might even be soft again this time. What's important is, is the core structural underpinning uh, inflation, uh, you know, uh, rents, uh, as well as importantly, labor, um, you know, costs that, that, are, um, that, that are rising and, and, the, and the demand push that's happening. So I, I would be looking more at the core, more at the long term effects. Uh, don't don't get uh, get don't get too excited by the by the headline number. Thank you, Martin. I know you said you expect a surprise to the downside because there's no Biden or Yellen pressers. Can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of. I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of Bannon and the looking around at at narratives and how narratives are being being spun. And this current administration is, in my opinion is the master at narratives and has done a fantastic job of talking down energy prices in particular. I've got a little bit of an energy background and to see the disconnect between the paper and physical markets the way they are now is something quite unique. So in my opinion, I think the government has done a really good job of talking down um, the, the demand side and bringing down uh, gasoline prices and, and top line oil prices. And so, I, I would agree that you want to look at, at the core inflation, excluding food and energy, because energy is already uh, uh, in that downward move, and that's going to be reflected in the top line number. So what I meant by my tweet was that I think that we're going to see a surprise to the downside on the top line core may be stickier than what's expected. But then, you know, given the, the narrative that's being spun, uh, that focus may be on that core, but the Fed, I mean, not on the core. But the, the Fed certainly is, is going to look that, that direction to substantiate to what the market's expecting another 75 basis point hike. Thank you, Martin. Ben, what do you think? Will headlines seem down, but the core inflation be quite sticky, as Jem said? Is energy reflected heavily in the top line number? Oh, probably. I don't know. I. I... What I find really interesting is that there's a transition point that happens every time we start focusing on a particular series of macro data, right? So you saw this around uh, employment numbers, you know, in the great financial crisis. You, 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 this happens over and over again. And what I mean is there's a transition point that happens where people, by people I mean market participants, stop focusing on levels and they start focusing on expectations, right? So we, we made that transition, I think, some months ago, early summer, we made that transition to focusing on expectations rather than levels uh, when looking at inflation data. And that's, it's a very market-supportive uh, transition, typically, which is, why, frankly, why it happens. Sell side, everyone else, you're always looking for reasons to buy and to participate in markets. So we've made this transition to looking at expectations rather than at levels. So what that means is, I'll extend on that, the expectations have also been trained to focus on month over month. So look, it's if headline is above or below zero, that will be influential in how markets react. If core is above or below 
0.3% on month over month. That's the expectation. So, frankly, that's what I'm looking at more for now. I mean, if you ask me personally what I think about what's going to happen in the world over time, I'm much more interested in levels, right? But if you're asking me about what the market reaction to a print is going to be, it's, it's, it's expectations. That's what's driving us right now. And we've furthermore been trained to look at the month-over-month expectations. So those are the numbers that I'm looking at. Whether it comes above or below that, who the hell knows? But, you know, that's what's going to drive a market reaction here. Yes, sir, Ben. Great point. Regard, excuse me. Great point with regards to levels and expectations. Last bear, what are you expecting when looking at CPI and your larger bear thesis? Does it matter? Um, I think on, on previous, the, the past couple months, I've made the point that each one of these data points probably doesn't matter too much in the scheme of things. Maybe, maybe to, to zig off of that a little bit, this one does seem a little bit more important just because of the deceleration that we saw last month. Um, in CPI figures, um, but PPI also peaked pretty con- conclusively over the summer and is coming down pretty pretty dramatically. Um, I think if you are sort of forward-looking on a lot of these points, you will see that money supply has sort of been flat for the past six months. We've had now six months of uh, uh, rate hikes um, and, and tightening, and so I think that all of these things, it's easy to get caught up in whatever the you know dominant narrative is. And for the past uh, six months or 12 months, that's been inflation. And it's been correct to sort of call that out as, as high and broad inflation. But I think it's always important to be forward looking. And I think that if we see uh, inflation start to roll over, then that's, that is a pretty big deal um, for the Fed's policy going forward. Um, as well as just how we're thinking about the macro environment. And it's not necessarily a good thing if inflation is, is rolling over because demand has finally been sort of slayed by high prices. So um, I think it's also important to sort of get out of the, the thinking of, of you know, a, a bad or a sort of a low number on inflation is necessarily good for markets to the extent that it's sort of foreboding a recession. So that, that's kind of where I'm at. Thank you. Really good point there as well. Our master of the Fed and reporting on it. Pedro, how do we think the Fed is looking at this data currently, given next week is their first meeting since the August break? What will they be looking for? Absolutely. I think what's fascinating to to think about the recent past before making predictions about the future and to look back and, and, and think that like in the spring or going into summer, people were, were actually discussing uh, – uh, September pause, if you recall, right? Jackson Hole was supposed to be the pivot speech that was going to give lead us to a pause, and that's because we had a March peak in uh, in inflation that turned out to not be the peak, and we we had that rebound, uh, and we peaked in June with that nine point one percent reading. And so, what's fascinating about that is that we've gone from, you know, just in three or four months, the expectation of a pause as early as this meeting. To now, you have a supposedly data-dependent Fed that is unlikely to be swayed by this particular data point, even if it's even if it's you know quite weak, and that's because exactly because of that head fake from March, uh, officials were kind of taken aback and frightened a little bit, and now the calculus seems to seems to be that it's better to over tighten and make sure inflation expectations are under control than to underdo it and let inflation expectations, you know, become unanchored. 
but I think the the point that Last Bear made earlier is is very important that that a lower inflation reading might actually be reflecting not just lower energy prices but also that that sort of crushing of demand that the Fed is trying to engineer through its rate hikes, uh, and therefore you know you might get. Uh, an initial positive market reaction, but then once the, real, the realization sets in that conditions are actually deepening and worsening, uh, the market might rethink its move. So I think, it, you know, the number itself won't influence the Fed as far as this meeting. But I think the, also that the, the consensus that Jay Powell has managed to cobble together is going to start breaking down over the next few meetings because there's a fairly wide range of of views within the the FOMC about how high rates should go, ranging from three and a half percent all the way up to you know four and a half percent. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is what the Fed's summary of economic projections next next week is going to show as far as the terminal rate and as far as the path of inflation because they had a really optimistic SEP as of July. Perfect. Thank you. Let's look at inflation a bit more here in a second. But first of all. Joey Politano, welcome, friend. Everybody subscribe to his newsletter. He just went full time. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry I wasn't able to join the space immediately. Uh, uh, Twitter's engineers were <laughs> holding me back there for like <laughs> 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, I, I did just go full time on my newsletter, which I'm very excited about. And I'm thankful to be here today to talk about uh, inflation. Well, speaking of... You wrote in your recent blog post that in the short run, inflation dynamics are determined by policy and business cycle fluctuations. But in the long run, inflation dynamics are determined by inflation expectations and that the role of the central bank is to manage short run fluctuations to ensure that long run inflation expectations remain anchored. Can you explain further on that, Joey? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I 100% subscribe to that thesis. That that was me trying to sort of uh, synthesize what like the orthodox opinion on uh, inflation is, you know, you'll have a, uh, a shock that the economy goes above or below output, that's going to push short run inflation up or down. But in the long run, it's all about like what people expect, what people are planning for. That's why, you know, Argentina has 60% annualized inflation than they have for like the last decade. Um, and I think if, if you saw yesterday, the, the New York Fed has these surveys of consumer expectations. They look at inflation expectations. Almost all their metrics of inflation expectations were down. Um, and I think I saw people celebrating that. And I do think that that's a, a positive sign for the Fed. You know, they don't want people to think that inflation is here to stay forever and they start planning around it. But I think that those expectations are less important than people think. You know, obviously, nobody in, in the consumer world expected inflation to be really high in 2020, and that didn't induce inflation to be high in 2021. By the same token, we shouldn't look at like, oh, in inflation expectations are coming down because gas prices are down, like mission accomplished, <laughs> we're all, everything's fixed. Um, and especially when you look at like people who might know a bit more. So if you look at like business inflation expectations, you cost inflation expectations, they're still really high. Uh, they're coming down, which is like a, obviously a positive turning point, but like the Atlanta Fed does this measure of business inflation expectations. That's like almost double what it was pre-pandemic uh, for the one year ahead period. And it's like significantly ahead for like a, a long run period. That's to me is more worrying. 
Um, and if you're saying like, what, what does the Fed want from consumers? They want you to like stop, stop buying durables for the time being. If you can just hold off on those big purchases for like a couple of years, that's their ideal scenario. Um, and I think consumers are partly agreeing with that. You know, people are very mad about the, the prices of uh, furniture, cars, homes, things like that. They're, they're pulling back their spending in those categories. But when gas prices go down, they say, okay, the economy is going to be better. They're actually more likely to buy these big purchases, which is not what the Fed wants. So that's like the, the tricky balancing act. Um, my point there was just saying like the, the inflation expectations are important. Um, and I, I don't discount them, but I don't like read them uh, as gospel. And I worry that some people read them as gospel because that's what like the, the orthodox economic theory says. It's like the inflation expectations dominate everything in the long run. Hey, Nicholas, can I jump in on that? Cause I, I think Please, really yeah. Yeah, so look, I, I, I totally agree with Joey that, that it's not five-year, five-year forwards or whatever you're looking at that really determines inflation expectations. Inflation expectations are the day-to-day business decisions by uh, managers and households. That's it, right? Do you, do you give a raise? Do you raise your prices? That's what inflation expectations really is, okay? It's not, it's not these market indicators, and I think Joey's exactly right that we put way too much emphasis on the precisely defined indicators of inflation expectations like, you know, forwards and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm in real agreement about that. But I'm also, I think I'm in agreement with, with Joey that inflation expectations, because the Fed is an orthodox institution, that is what they're after, right? What, what they mean by we don't want inflation expectations to become embedded is exactly what he's talking about, right? You don't want business decisions, whether by households or by corporations, to start anticipating that there's going to be long-term embedded inflation in the economy. And it's really hard to squelch those expectations when labor costs are rising like they are, when you have pricing power so that you can raise prices and get away with it. It's really hard to squelch that, right? So what I think that means is that the Fed has to overshoot, not just in real world, right, not just with the actual, you know, overnight interest rates that that they set, but they also have to overshoot in narrative world. And that's what I think we're seeing from the Fed right now, right, where where they're being extremely hawkish in their language, you know, higher for longer when it comes to rates in a mirror image of how they were lower for longer when that was what they wanted to achieve in narrative world. So I, I think that's the dynamic that's happening here, right? That this is a um, an exercise that is not just taking place in, you know, again, real world. What's what, you know, is it going to be 75 bips or 50 bips? What's the timetable for that? But it's also even more so taking place in narrative world where the Fed is really trying hard to crush those inflation expectations in narrative space as much as they are in real world space. But uh, it's, it's um, Mar- Marty here. I'd like to jump in. But Ben, you bring up a really good, really good point because they obviously failed miserably 
on trying to control the narrative that everything was transitory. And then now, you know, they're trying to control the narrative on the other end. Isn't, and I'll throw that out there for everybody, but isn't there some, some consequences, some risk of, of doing so? Uh, you can see it on, on the front end, but, you know, can't the same thing happen on the back end? Yeah, yeah. There, there, I, sorry, Jim. No, no, go ahead. So just real quickly, of course there are risks, but what else are they going to do? Right, Martin? I, I mean, you know, they're going to make the effort. It's, it's, their, it's their most potent toolkit that they've got, which is forward guidance, communication policy, call it whatever you want, and they're bringing all of those, <laughs> all of those guns to bear to try to convey a credibility and a determination to hike lo- higher for longer, right? That, so that's what they're going to do, whether it works or not, whether there are consequences. I mean, hell yeah. I mean, of course this is problematic. But I don't think that stops them from doing it. That's a great point. I, if I could, if I could just quote a Fed paper, that was a famous Fed paper written earlier this year by an economist named David Rudd at the uh, at the Fed board, and he writes that it, it remains the case that we have nothing better than circumstantial evidence for a relationship between long run expected inflation and inflation's long run trend, and no evidence at all about what might be required to keep that trend fixed. In other words, the Fed, many at the Fed, don't even believe their own hype. But it's sort of like the best running theory that they've got. And so they have to go after it, to Ben's point. There, there are two sources of inflation. We talk about one thing uh, in inflation, but the reality is there's structural demand push inflation. Uh, if you look at the 60s and 70s, inflation, it was a very, we had very strong GDP growth in real terms. People don't talk about that. We had above trend GDP growth. But we had very hot inflation. It was a go-go demand side um, uh, economy. That's what we're experiencing right now. All of this fiscal policy um, uh, is, is feeding uh, demand from uh, from people as opposed to the supply side uh, economy we've lived in for the last 40 years. This, that is sticky. That is core inflation. That is the inflation that once you start operating under a different set of economic principles, changes the structure of the economy and there are reflexive effects to that uh, and and that really is a, fa- a response to the inequality of the last 40 years this is something that is if we are going to address which is what the populace is is demanding the, this in uh, this inequality um that, that we've experienced uh, and, and there's demographic reasons to believe that we're going to continue to do that that inflation is structural and long-term inflation expectations will rise out of that they can play the narrative game in the short term. They can, uh, you know, they, they, we, can, we can have small supply side responses in terms of releasing the SPR, um, et cetera. But that, as long as we are addressing inequality, the structural inflation will go higher. Long-term inflation expectations will go higher. And that means less money available to capital. That means uh, higher rates long-term. And that means lower multiples. It's, it's that straightforward. And, and if anything, the narrative uh, game makes... Uh, makes markets more vulnerable because it, it uh, people become less hedged. You have uh, counter trend situations where people say, "Okay, CPI is getting better." The the pressure to deal with inflation comes off. This is what we saw from William McChesney Martin in the late 1960s. We saw it again with Arthur Burns in the in the mid 70s, and they were much more aggressive. Ironically, everybody kind of poo poos Arthur Burns 
Uh, he raised, uh, you know, the Fed funds rate 10 and a half percent. You know, we're not even close to anything like that. William McChesney Martin raised them seven and a half percent. You know, uh, we're talking about getting to four, uh, four and a half, five. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're still, uh, we still have a long way to go. The Fed knows it. Uh, I agree. The Fed doesn't believe their own hype. They're just trying to play a narrative game. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, there's a long, long, uh, this is just the beginning of what is a, a secular trend and a change and a rebalancing of the economy. Great points, Jim. You wrote a lot about that in your August post in Kai Volatility, which, by the way, everybody should be subscribed to. Learn a lot from that. But, panel, let's keep talking about this and feel free to jump in. Maybe last bear regarding the structural inflation expectations and the Fed's ability to deal with it. Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll take a little bit of a different take than, than some of the others. I think that expectations... <laughs> I, I like to keep things focused in facts, but maybe on this one I'll, I'll uh, go into a little bit of just kind of uh, game theory or, or maybe some uh, <laughs> some more out there thinking on my part. But I, I think a lot of the discussion on expectations is sort of kind of a cover to um, obfuscate or... Um, you know, not talk about just the, the, what's in the Fed's control, you know, whether it's quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, um, uh, raising interest rates, lowering them. Um, you know, the Fed does do have things that are absolutely in their control that I think are really important that determine uh, the rate and change of money supply and how that money gets distributed throughout the population. And those things are really important to prices and availability of money and inflation. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, what the inflation that we've seen over the past year or so, I think you, you have to ascribe large part of it to Fed policy over the past two years, not expectations. I think as somebody mentioned earlier, you know, it's not like everyone was expecting that there was going to be 8% inflation last year. But I think that there was because you had a massive increase in the amount of money um, that was available to, for people to spend. And that was a, a decision by the Fed. To do that, and so I think, you know, when I look at the, that being sort of a tangible driver of inflation over the past year, I think it's you know, similar going forward that the policy decisions that they make are going to be very important to what happens with inflation. And I think expectations is kind of a theoretical argument that it's kind of harder to nail down. When you know, by contrast, if if the Fed was to continue on an aggressive rate of QT where you had shrinking money supply for a significant period of time, I think that's going to have a much more tangible impact on the level of prices in the next two years than um, these inflation or the expectations, which I think are largely sort of backwards looking. So that's kind of my perspective on, on expectations. I, I could not disagree more uh, with that. And, and uh, this is not just to be polemical. I, uh, the Fed has very, very little to do with the inflation that we're seeing. That is, uh, the idea that money supply increasing has somehow increased, uh, it caused inflation here is uh, completely incorrect. The velocity of monetary policy has essentially been zero for the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, we have not seen inflation with massive Fed stimulus over 40 years. What we saw that changed is fiscal policy. The velocity of money has gone to one with money being sent 
to people. That is fiscal policy. That is the response to COVID, which let loose a tidal wave of demand for money to people and a rebalancing of inequality. Fed stimulus, if anything, is supply side. It sends money to, uh, to, to supply. It sends money to corporations and wealthy individuals, which drives investment, which drives uh, which drives actually a deflationary response. That's what we saw for 40 years. I mean, this has been relatively well established. The Fed has very little control on demand. The only way they control demand is via supply and trickle-down economics. Hey, Jeb, let me, let me jump in on that. I mean, I, you're, in my view, you're entirely right that the, the spur for in the inflationary shock we got was two things, right? The biggest one, in my view, was fiscal. Right, it's PPP getting forgiven. Right, it's 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 all the money, the the trillions of dollars that were pushed uh, into the U.S. economy. You know, it's the um, you know it's it's the it was the tax cut, the 2017 you know tax cut, and I like to call it Law Jobs Act of 2017. These were enormous fiscal stimulus packages, enormous. Right, but what I would say about the Fed, right and I think you're agreeing with this, Jim, is that there's no break, right? The, the fiscal stimulus is there. At the same time, there was absolutely no break on demand and a persistence of zero interest rate policy and persistence of a narrative that they were going to stay at zero, that they meant it when they said lower for longer. Right? I, put, I think you put those two things, and that's what's driving it. You know, to get back to inflation expectations, look, I, I mean, the question is how persistent is inflation? Right? And I don't think you have to look any farther than in any country where, including the U.S. back in the 70s, but any country today that's, that's having persistent inflation, it's absolutely expectations. It's absolutely the expectations of ordinary business decisions by households and by, by management. And that's what expectations are, and that's how inflation gets embedded, and that requires a much more drastic response to crush demand, to crush jobs, which no one in a political position, which the Fed is definitely in a political position, no one wants to do. So you try to overshoot at the early stage, like we are now, both in real world and narrative world, and hope like hell that works. Will it? I have no idea. I think it's kind of unlikely without sparking a, you know, crushing demand and crushing jobs. But, you know, that's the only road they have. That's the only road they have, so that's what they're going to do. If I could just add one point to that, Ben, I, I wanted to bring in one factor that we haven't talked about, which is the pandemic itself, right? Like, it's hard to disagree that fiscal had some a significant effect on inflation given the size of the stimulus. But countries that didn't have a similarly sized stimulus are also struggling with high inflation. Agreed. Agreed, so Pedro. It's a good point. The, Very yeah, good point. So you have the really, that was the part that the inflationistas didn't predict. Uh, you know, the notion that, you know, fiscal was predicted to generate inflation, but they didn't see the other side of it, the fact that the supply chain holdups were going to be so persistent and so pervasive. Uh, I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. So totally agree. Can I, you know, can I just, it's, uh, Martin here. The other, the other thing is that's important is currencies and, um, and, and the fed and, and how that's influencing 
you know, the dollar and, and other jurisdictions, especially ones that are struggling like Europe, who've lost control over their, over their energy uh, policy and, uh, and how, how that's going to drive global inflation and then, and then how that uh, can trickle down into many other factors, including onshoring, like Brookfield and Intel did a deal. So, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that play here that I agree with Ben that the Fed just really can't control other than, you know, throwing, throwing higher rates to, to try and, and hope to, to block those expectations. But on, on me being a, a looking on, on the supply side, we're talking about demand side, supply side is in a very precarious situation and uh, on, on the commodity side. And uh, that's going to, to, to have all kinds of, 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 a, of an impact on sports. I just wanted to ask, since uh, it seems like a number of people disagreed with my take on it, just out of curiosity, how the five trillion dollars of fiscal spending was funded <laughs> you mean you mean was it was was there was there a tax you know you know <laughs> offset for that of course not I, I mean the relationship between taxation and spending has been totally cut right in every western country frankly and is that is that a big part of what's going on absolutely that's a big part of what's going on right but uh, you know that is, at its core, a fiscal decision. And then you've got to think, well, how do you fund it? You can't fund it with taxes. No politician is going to do that. So, yeah, do the do, do, do central banks essentially fund it? Yeah, of course they do. But, um, you know, the, at the root, that's a fiscal decision, right? That's a, that's, and the Fed's just got to live with it. We got some numbers, yeah. guys. <laughs> yes, sir. Got some numbers. Looks like we came in at 8.3. Uh, the futures were up significantly right before that and now suddenly down 60 points on the S&P 500. So with this 8.3 print, whole panel, anybody feel free to jump in. How are we feeling now? I would say it's a lot, you know, it's a lot less relieving for the Fed. I have to look at the details, but that that monthly core gain is pretty is out of sorts for the Fed. It's exactly the opposite of what the Fed wants to be. Fed officials have talked about getting month-on-month core readings in the 0.2-ish range. A 0.6 reading is just, you know, three times. It's a killer. Yeah, it's a yeah. killer. It's death. Yeah, I think, I th- actually, I think it opens up the possibility that the Fed will have to go 75 again in November if it if the data keeps up like this, to be for honest. Sure. You know, I'm going to jump in. The, the 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 ones who are really going to be out to sea right now are the bulge bracket sell side firms like Goldman and J.P. Morgan, who have you know recently come out with oh it's going to be a soft landing and or mid cycle slowdown, growth recession, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you get a number like this, it's really hard to to stick with that story. Yeah, I'm just looking here. the The big thing I was trying to look out for was any. Uh any sort of turnaround in rent prices. And we got the exact opposite. Shelter was up 0.7% compared to 0.4% last month, which is like the core, core inflation. That's a level the Fed really doesn't want to see. Yeah, and that's that trend we've been talking that we all kind of mentioned at the beginning. And that's what matters. That's, you know, the, you can release as much of the SPR as you want. You can deal with commodities in the short term and try and goose these numbers, you know, improve them for election purposes. But the core structural inflation is alive and well yeah i want i want to go back to this the to what's happening on the sell side right so i mean in the same way that of course the fed is going to pursue 
what path they have to a happy ending, right? And that goes by different names. It's you know we used to call it a mid-cycle slowdown. You know, you've heard this phrase growth recession, soft landing. They're all phrases in narrative world that mean the same thing. And over the last few weeks, and we've really picked this up in our models, you've had an enormous growth in financial media narrative that that was actually the most likely outcome. And and what I want to just point out for people is that if you are a sell-side analyst, right, you work for J.P. Morgan or Goldman or Morgan Stanley or whoever, right, and you think there is a even a 30% chance of a good outcome, soft landing, growth recession, whatever that good outcome is, it is your business imperative to say that is your base case. Whether you believe it in the heart of hearts or not, the business of Wall Street is that the, the soft landing, the good outcome, has to be your base case. And this just makes it so difficult to you know, to, 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 to stay with that. So, um, if I can, my heart heart goes out to the, to the sell side guys today. I I really appreciate that point, Ben, because I was around in the last, in the global financial crisis as a reporter at Reuters and that term mid cycle slowdown really like, it gives me some like, yes, flashback because it reminds me 2006, 2007. And, and by the way, to your point about the business imperative, you know what firms, what two firms had the most soft landing or the softest landing priced into their outlooks? It was Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers because their business imperative really required it, as we it saw from, from reality. Exactly right. so, uh, that tells you a lot. So real quick, just to jump in here, last Bear, I want to know what you're thinking right now. I know we got a little interrupted there by the CPI drop from that last discussion. How are you feeling now, Bear? Um, I'm still looking through the numbers. So I don't. Uh, it's too early to to say anything. Um, but I, I think it is absolutely the the core. Um, you know, kind of resuming the level that it had over over the summer, um, picking back up um, is uh, definitely not a good sign for the Fed. Definitely, uh, uh, the idea that they're going to um, pause or, or pivot in the next couple months uh, definitely feels feels less likely. Jim, how do you think the Fed is looking at this at the moment? Like, what do you think is going through the Fed's mind as these numbers release? Yeah, I mean, look, they know what I've, I've been talking about. This is not like, uh, this is, if you look at history, if you're a student of what happened the last time we saw inflation, again, it's been 40 years since we've seen inflation. Um, they have studied that period incredibly well. They are aware of the structural issues that we have. These are demographic issues. These are issues of inequality and rebalancing. These are things that are not going away. They realize they're up against a a big battle. They have been trying to communicate to the market. The market's not listening. Um, The market has been fighting the Fed, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit for the last uh, several months. Um, You know, they are going to, they're trying to communicate that they will be raising rates much more aggressively than people are pricing in. Um, you know, uh, the reality is, you know, they want to take real rates positive. They have to. Actually, you know, Arthur Burns, right, uh, is lampooned uh, for not taking rates negative when inflation was at 15% um, and keeping it there. William McChesney Martin, who took rates, uh, you know, positive, 
uh, by two and a half percent, mind you, in, in 1969 to 1970. It's also lampoon because he didn't control inflation. These guys do not want to make these mistakes in order to take real rates positive. We're at 8.3%, guys. Uh, we don't need to take interest rates to four and a half, Fed funds to four and a half. Uh, if we can get inflation down to, let's say, 6%, we still need to take rates to seven, seven and a half. And so the market is uh, drinking the hopium, you know, smoking opium. It, it is. Uh, there is so much, uh, we, uh, such a, a chasm between where we are in terms of expectations of the market um, and, and the reality of situations. And the Fed is trying to tell you that they are not. They're not uh, saying otherwise. Yeah, honestly, this, this print makes it makes the Fed's narrative work easier, not more difficult. The more difficult task for them would be to explain away if, if this had come in, you know, softer. But, uh, but, uh, but a hard inflation reading like this, it, ma- it makes the Fed's job easier, not harder. I agree with that. So I'm going to kind of pivot here just a little bit. There's a great piece by Zoltan at Credit Suisse who said that war is inflationary and inflation itself is structural. Basically, the regime of cyclical inflation drivers is over and we're now left with uncertainty, enhanced risk, and an ever uncertain inflationary environment where macro events, political decisions, they're more important than the Fed's actions. Joey and Martin, can you explain on this a little bit more to the listeners if you can? Maybe let's start with Joey. Sure. I think, um, you know, I- I've written before that I'm not the biggest fan of this thesis from, uh, from Zoltan. And I think it's very funny looking back uh, at how much his predictions were for like a weaker dollar a stronger uh, renminbi, and and that was basically flipped on its head over the last um, six or so months. Um, But the the general idea he's getting at, which I think is somewhat true, is that countries like the the global uh, network of supply chains and trade is becoming less trustworthy. Uh, People view it as a big risk to have critical supplies needing to be imported uh, everything from like energy to semiconductors to basic manufactured goods, people are less willing to be reliant on um, countries that are in their mind less reputable or geopolitical adversaries or what have you. And I think you know somewhat irrational response. If you're Germany, you're you know kind of uh, licking your wounds about relying on Russia. If you're Russia, you're licking your wounds about relying on you know manufactured goods from the rest of the world. And I think the the core point of that is that. If you're Russia, you're saying, I need to invest a ton of money into, you know, building out domestic factories and industry so I don't have to worry about what Europe wants, what Europe cares about. If you're the U.S., you're saying, well, I would like to have all these semiconductor fabricators domestically so that if something were to happen to Taiwan, you know, we wouldn't be thrown into chaos. And that, you know, net sum of massive investment is a demand pressure to get you know, all these things built immediately. And then it's a supply pressure down the lay. It's like, we're building this factory today. It's going to take all these resources now, and then it'll start outputting things in four or five years. Um, that's, that's a big deal for inflation. I don't know if I would say that's what makes it structural right now. Like if you're looking at, you know, this report, I think the, the core thing I would take away is saying, okay, the, the drivers of inflation are more services. They're, you know, housing uh, and rent, especially here. And that's driven from, you know, people's income, all the spending over the last year or so. I don't know if that's like 
the the industrial you know the industrial side of it is not what you're looking at if you're looking at commodity inputs right now you're saying actually that's getting better you know i have an interesting i think an important point to make here um zoltan separates things like geopolitics and a lot of people do geopolitics and things that he considers to be more random uh, risky things, um, he separates them from the structural issues we've talked about. And the reality is, if you look at history, these things cluster. Uh, I believe Ben's talked about some of these things. These are not independent events. Um, the, the reality is globalization, technological in innovation, all of these things which people think are somehow independent things have been driven by free money for the last 40 years by a monetary policy supply side driven cycle. Globalization is in an unwind because, to a large extent, because of the backing away of capital, the protectionist measures that come with inequality, that come with the demographic changes. If you look at what's happening here, it all fits in to uh, similar things that we've seen in other major cycles. Um, you see more war. You see more. We go from a cooperation game to um, a, a competition game when the cost of money goes up, when the, the availability of, of resources declines. And that is what we're seeing. That is why we are seeing China and Russia um, who are in disadvantageous situations, who are proud cultures, who want um, the best for their people, um, coming uh, at heads, at loggerheads with, with the West. Um, and, and this is a trend that we're likely to see. And yes, war is inflationary. Just look at Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. Um, this is, these things are not independent events. We're likely to continue to see this as we unwind globalization, as we compete over resources. Uh, it's Martin here. I completely agree with everything that we just said. Um, it's, it's, it's chicken or the egg. We're saying, well, war is causing inflationary pressures but on the other hand you know war comes out of some of the structural changes that we're witnessing that was uh, taken advantage of by jurisdictions like russia and knowing full well that um you're looking at at the commodity chain that's been severely underinvested in over the last decade because we're in a so-called deflationary environment and looking at, at at things from our own perspective in north america and as a result, you had regimes like Russia go in and, and take advantage of, of that situation, in particular uh, Europe. You're looking at energy investment that um, has been severely impaired um, and requires ex uh, an extensive amount of capital to, uh, to, to maintain production. And at the same time, you're telling everybody that the pervasive theme that we're seeing peak demand, which is clearly not the case. And, uh, and so as a result, you're having supply shortfalls, which is very material. And the only way you're going to get around that is by doing what the UK has done more recently is, hey, we've got to increase domestic supply by um, allowing fracking, allowing offshore drilling. At the same time, you have a Biden administration that has the lowest leash rate um, in, the, in the entire U.S. history and discouraging uh, drilling and looking at a, a more uh, green, green energy that just isn't able to keep up with baseload uh, demand. And, and as a result, you're having these, these, these commodity volatility, which makes it extremely difficult for a central bank to manage when you have you know, four or 5% swings in, 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 in commodity prices, in particular oil, 
Um, and I just think you pull up a lumber chart and I'll tell you exactly what's going to transpire over the next couple of years. You're going to get big, big drops and big spikes and that makes it very difficult to manage if, if you're, again, a central bank. So, yeah, there's, there's some structural changes here um, that I think was just accelerated from, from COVID coming in and that, that makes it very difficult uh, from a monetary uh, policy perspective. Hey, Nicholas, can I try to tie some of this? I'm sorry, Pedro, you go ahead. I, then I've got something on this. Yeah, I just wanted to make the quick point that the Fed is very attuned to this debate. And actually part of the the theme around the Jackson Hole Conference this year, which I attended, was the, the notion of whether it's kind of a, a, an evolved version of the transitory debate is whether we've entered a new inflation regime or not because of these factors we're talking about, both on the supply chain and on the the reduced globalization of labor side, or whether this still is a sort of a shock that that lasted longer than they expected, but that will subside with time. And there's still a lot of uncertainty around that. So, yeah, look, I, I just Pedro, I, I get that in, in all the allocators that I that I talk to, right? Do you go with the, you know, looking forward, right? Do you do you stick with the strategies that have worked over the last ten to twelve years? Because they don't work in this sort of new environment, if the environment has really changed. But it's really difficult to sell to your, you know, your board or whoever you have to explain things to if you say, no, we're going to go with these strategies and these managers that haven't really worked over the last 10 years because we think the underlying structural world has changed, right? So it's, it's, <laughs> that's the only question that really matters right, for big pools of capital right now. I, I mean, my personal view is it has changed. It, 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 this, this really is a structural change. And, you know, I, I'm a defrocked academic. I was a professor of political science of all oxymorons for, for, for a long time. So it, it's always been interesting to me that the trade that has not worked over the last, decades, 15 years, is the political risk trade, right? I mean, every time there was some political risk, whether that's domestic in the U.S., right, even I remember the fiscal cliff, right, or whether that's a geopolitical risk in the Middle East or Asia, you, you name it, right? It didn't really matter because central banks had unlimited capacity to paper it over, right? You could you know, take rates negative if you wanted to. You could make infinite amount available in swap lines and, you know, facilities. There were no links to which a central bank could not go to fight a deflationary shock. Right? Which is what, which is what geopolitical or any sort of political risk is. It's a deflationary shock. Those degrees of freedom are now gone, right? With a print of whatever it is, eight point three percent today, the Fed has no ability to use its playbook of lowering rates, providing swap. You know, all these facilities that every central bank in the world has used for the last 10 to 15 years anytime there was a whiff of political risk. 
So where I really agree with this, you know, Zoltan thesis, and where I really do think that the world has fundamentally changed, is not that it's a more dangerous world today, or that you know, it's more likely to have political risk and political shock events. Although, yeah, I kind of agree with that too. The big change today is that the ability of central banks to paper it over, it's gone. And that, that to me, really does create a very different investment environment than we've enjoyed over the last 15 years. So I want to kind of take this course uh, to the whole panel. Um, could anybody, nobody in particular, speak about this a little bit more regarding a different investment environment? Ben, if you want to continue that, you can as well. Kind of expound upon yeah, look, what you mean look, by look, that. So what's really different today is that there are differences that matter between nations. So for you know the last decade plus since the great financial crisis, every central bank has been reading, you know, singing off the same hymn book, right? I, I mean, it, it, there's been very little difference between nations in their policies. I think what we're seeing today is that that is breaking down. It's basically, you know, every central bank for itself at this point, and with the lack of degrees of freedom to paper over shocks, particularly political risk shocks, that that means that national differences are going to be accentuated in a way that we haven't seen in 15 years. So, you know, whether that means, you know, looking at global macro, whether that means looking at strategies that didn't work when a central bank is able to paper over any problems and that they probably work today, you know, that that is the big issue for any investor, you know, big or small today. Um, yeah, that's the question. I think it's fundamentally changed, but, you know, there are a lot of consequences of that change, and it ain't pretty. I, I'm going to dive in here just to, from a big macro, 30,000-foot view. Look, for 40 years, it's been monetary policy. The reaction function to a pullback in the market, to a crisis, has not been political. It has not been uh, addressed to the people. It has been addressed to capital. It has been lower interest rates, QE. I want to emphasize, this is supply-side economics. This is money going directly into markets in response. So the logical response of markets has been uh, to buy and hold. We've seen, uh, or to buy the dip, dollar cost average, that's what's worked. 60-40, right? Uh, you know, diversify with bonds. That, in the last 40 years, which seems like forever, uh, was the obvious trade, that the Fed gave everybody um, a, a uh, you know, a free lunch. Uh, but when interest rates went to zero and inequality got to an extreme, all of a sudden, people uh, who have been left out, particularly uh, the younger generation, which uh, has, has borne the brunt of this because they have been labor, they haven't been, you know, baby boomers have had the assets and benefited from the capital appreciation. But the younger generation has started to say, as they become into, come into political power, uh, that, that this is not okay. Uh, you know, equality matters. Uh, these themes that we keep seeing, and it's, it's alive and well when you look at Bitcoin, the whole reason for kind of Bitcoin's resurgence is because, you know, a surgeon is because that younger generation feels uh, like the system is broken and unfair and it's been driven by monetary policy. But, but that drive has now 
driven, a political will for rebalancing. COVID released that fiscal policy response. And that's not a, people, everybody thinks, okay, we did that once, we now made that quote unquote mistake and we're not gonna make it anymore. But all we've seen and all we see throughout history is when inflation gets started, that creates more fiscal response, not less. Uh, the rebalancing uh, of inequality is just getting started. You can't address this in one year with one uh, major fiscal push. Um, and so that's what's important to understand is that the way the economy is working is different. It is not, it's no longer a supply side response situation. Demographic changes, structural political changes are driving a demand side push. And that economy is very different. And a demand side push with higher interest rates, uh, multiples come down, demand for equities, money goes from investors to, to consumers. And so there's less money for investment, more money for uh, consumption. Uh, revenues should go up, price to sales should come back and normalize, margins should shrink, right? Everything, uh, we're in a normalization process. Anything that looks uh, 40 years off the charts, take a look at it. That's, that's going to normalize. And again, price to sales, margins, those are, you know, I'm not convinced we're gonna have deep, deep recessions in the short term. I think, I think we're gonna get an earnings recession. I think margin contraction is, is on the way. Um, but again, different market. Passive investment will not work in this environment. 68 to 82 markets went nowhere in nominal terms. Go take a look at the charts from that period. Nowhere in nominal terms and lost 70% of the value in real terms. So very different type of investing environment. So kind of on that topic of a different investing environment, a few panelists so far have spoken about <clears throat> how structural inflation happens due to a lack of resources and competition, you know, caused by inequality via monetary policy, <clears throat> excuse me, monetary policy. Maybe, uh, Pedro, you can speak a bit about the investing environment when things like quantitative tightening are taking place. You know, the ultimate lack of resources are occurring in the background. Absolutely. I mean, the Fed has been very focused on the idea that QT is, is going to be like, quote, watching paint dry, and therefore it can happen in the background and nobody needs to worry about it. And there's been a lot of focus on the possibility of a recession uh, as we tighten monetary policy. But I, I'm, I've been focusing my reporting a lot and asking a lot of questions about the actual risk of a financial type crisis. I don't know what form it would take, but it seems like the lowest hanging fruit at this point is some kind of repeat of the liquidity squeeze that we had in the treasury market. That's something that uh, former RBI governor Raghuram Rajan told me in this interview I did with him because he, he worked on the Jackson Hole paper essentially arguing that QT would be an uphill battle. And the notion is that you have, you know, a generation of traders really that's, that's used to this liquidity, but also a generation of contracts that's based on the, this availab availability of ready-made ready liquidity. And when that starts to evaporate, I think there are a lot of pockets of leverage in the market that might not be visible in when times are good that might start to come to the fore when things are, are not so great. So I think corporate credit might become a concern once if we if and when we get into a recession. But even even without that, we might actually get some kind of ructions in the treasury market that would leave the Fed in a really awkward spot of either having to re-intervene in the treasury market while it's trying to do QT or, you know, expand the, the, the range of counterparties that can, that can uh, participate in the repo facility. And so that's one thing that I'm watching fairly closely. 
Anyone else have any thoughts on that? You know, I'll just say this. I, I, you know, my rule of thumb is I'm always looking for a $10 trillion asset class, you know, that can basically blow up with either a deflationary, inflationary shock. And, and it's exactly to Pedro's point, right? I mean, you can be insolvent forever. It's the illiquidity that kills you. And, and so you're looking for a big asset class where, you know, the basic idea of, you know, borrowing short and lending long is, is applicable. And, you know, in, in, in late 07, you know, I was looking at, as everyone else, or as everyone that soon became to look at, was, you know, residential mortgage-backed securities, right? Non-conforming, non-Fannie, non-Freddie mortgage-backed securities, which was, you know, past that kind of magic $10 trillion mark. And I'm, 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 I don't, honestly, I, I keep looking for that big asset class that could really be the, the source of this sort of, um, you know, liquidity shock. I'm having a hard time finding it. Honestly, Pedro, I mean, I, I totally agree with the premise, right, that if there is a flashpoint for a systemic market problem, it's going to be in an area where liquidity suddenly dries up, people don't trust each other. I mean, I don't know if that's, you know, I, for a while I was thinking, well, it's trade finance, but I, I just, I think that's been so, you know, decimated over the years and so shifted out of, you know, banks and into kind of, you know, other shadow banks and other institutions I, I, it's hard for me to see that as the flashpoint i don't know I'm, I'm i'm in such violent agreement with the idea that it's always the illiquidity that sparks one of these crises i'm just having a hard time figuring out where that is, right? I told is, it, is yeah. i've been looking for that as well and i agree with you it's hard to, it's hard to figure it out which is why I, I see i see the treasury market as the most likely you know locus for that just because it's happened before and people are currently complaining about illiquidity even before qt takes its you know its full toll so i i mean in my opinion it's going to be somewhere around corporate debt uh and and or emerging markets those are kind of the weak hands uh if you look at debt going back to 1980 you know uh corporate debt uh was at you know uh debt equity was about 30 30 percent it's uh it's about 50 percent now um, that is a dramatic change to balance sheets. Uh, malinvestment, uh, which is, you know, you keep interest rates at zero for long enough. Guess what? Shocking. Malinvestment happens, right? People start investing in lower uh, yielding uh, investments. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's the most likely place. It's not going to happen overnight because uh, people don't have to rebalance their, their debt loads uh, immediately. People, you know, a lot of corporations have have you know in the short term secure their balance sheets, but eventually that leads to to liquidation um, and uh, you know uh, creative destruction, and, and I think that's a, a likely place. Obviously, emerging markets, dollar denominated debt crises is you know uh, uh, historically you know this we've seen this movie before, um, and the more we export inflation, the more the dollar rises, um, the more we're likely to see issues there as well. So those are the places I'm kind of uh, you know focused on. Um, broadly, uh, I know they're not sexy and exciting, um, but but those are the places that are most likely to break in my opinion. I'd like to throw a question out. We're talking about risk. Um, as a portfolio manager, I have to make money for clients. So 
you know, I'll throw this out to the other panelists. Where do you make money in this new environment if it is indeed structural? So actually, that uh, that brings me directly to kind of what my my next question for the panel was going to be, and I'm going to kick it over to Joey here uh, to kind of take the helm on that as we start into that topic. Joey, would you agree about the different investing environment here against QT? How are you looking at this when it comes to your portfolio? Excuse me. Sorry, I have had uh, quite the time. I <laughs> there was a fire that just went off in my building, so I went out and then back in. Oh, damn. Um, Hope everything's all right. Yeah. Well, not, not in my unit. So as far as I know, everything's okay. But I, I think that's probably a, this is probably a better question for uh, another panelist here is I generally don't try to give um, investment advice. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Last Bear, do you want to take it? Uh, how are how are you kind of looking at things moving forward? Yeah, I, I would agree with, I think, what a, a lot of the comments that were made earlier. I think if you think about um, asset prices, financial assets or, or housing prices, you know, obviously, the fundamental value of those is highly dependent on the interest rate environment. And to the extent that we are entering into a new regime of higher inflation, um, that will require significantly higher rates to ultimately tame over, you know, a, a significant period of time, even if there's fluctuations, as there were in the 70s through sort of minor recessions and, and whatnot. Ultimately, what that means for financial assets is that you know, the, the values, the multiples are going to come down in, in the equity space. Obviously, fixed income, if you're in any sort of duration, will get smoked by that. Um, housing prices, we've already seen um, that start to take a toll. But obviously, the, it's obvious how that impacts the housing market. Um, and so it's pretty, if you subscribe to that, to, to the idea that we are entering into a, a longer term inflationary environment, then across the board for asset prices, you're, you're going to see um, those those come down and some have more inflation protection, so to speak, than than others um, over a long term. Um, but but that's the uh, that's a challenge that you need to sort of keep in mind. And I, I agree with a lot of the comments earlier about, you know, the geopolitical aspects, sort of the deglobalization aspect. And I think if you think before the pandemic, the biggest um, sort of geopolitical or, or trade issue was was U.S. and China. Um, and that was kind of a beginning of you know the, the whole tariffs and, and trade war between the U.S. and China, and and in many ways it's a similar thing to what we've seen in the sense that it's sort of an economic war, economic struggle um, that is in some way similar to uh, the the currents that are sort of underpinning you know what's going on with Russia and, and elsewhere around the world, and so there definitely is a case to be made um, that globalization. Uh, is is potentially starting to unwind. And if that's the case, and if that continues to be the case, then I definitely think that that uh, is, is uh, detrimental to the supply side um, and ultimately will be inflationary to the extent that it continues. Jim, I saw you unmuted your mic there. Do you have a comment? Yeah, I think the biggest theme that we kind of focus on is you have periods where uh, uh, capital markets are seen as the optimal allocator of um, uh, of resources. Uh, and then you have periods in history where government is. Um, and uh, because each has their benefits and disadvantages, uh, the reality is we're moving towards an environment where government is likely to continue, and they already are uh, allocating resources much more than they have historically, going to continue to be the source of allocation of resources. So you want to sit near government. Uh, you want to look at what government spends money on uh, infrastructure, healthcare, um, defense, right? 
these are themes that are likely to get the oxygen, right? Um, you also want to focus on the cost of money is going up. The value of money is going up. You want to uh, invest in things that generate real cash flow now, not future potential cash flows. Um, if you own a business that kicks off a good DCF, you know, like uh, that's still going to be a good cash flow, you know, machine. That's not going away. And if anything, that allow them in a period where uh, technology, you know, growth companies are declining for allow them to buy other corporations to to be in a source of strength and to build um, upon, um, you know, and, and to, to evolve. So value versus growth, we haven't seen that for 40 years until very recently. That's a trend that's likely to continue and sit by government. Look at places where the, where the money train is going to, you know, sit at the, the, the source of the, the river. Yeah, that's Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, to add to that. Yeah, if, I mean, I, I agree completely with what Jim was saying. I mean, the only thing I'd agree, I'd add to that, though, is that, man, you look at the world and the, the, the U.S. on all of these dimensions is by far the best house in an increasingly crappy neighborhood. I, I mean, I mean, come on. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just, anyway, I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that, but. Yeah, I think there's a good point to be made here about the the macro environment that we're currently in, or we being Americans, where if you were, you know, looking back even a few years ago at like, what's the macro environment in the US versus China versus Europe, uh, that it's completely switched where there's almost no debate now, like the US is in a better macro environment. That's very damning by faint praise to be in a better macro environment than Europe right now. Um, But it is still important to mention. Yeah, and look, all markets work on the margins, right? So, you know, we can be in the crappiest environment of all time for market returns, for what the market will give you. If you're a little bit less crappy, all the money goes to you. So, you know, it's – I think you follow the flows. You look at, you know, the least bad house in a terrible neighborhood, whatever that means to you, whether you're looking at a sector, whether you're looking at a uh, an asset class, whether you're looking at a – uh, you know, a geography, that, that's where we are. I mean, you know, you got to take what the market gives you, and right now it ain't much. That's all fair. And I'm, I'm going to just kind of pivot off of that into our last question here. Uh, I want to get everybody's closing thoughts uh, on what you think about the future, what you expect the Fed to do. And then, of course, feel free here as we push into the end of the space please plug please pump anything you want anything you're working on uh so let's let's kick this over to joey to start us off with that what are your thoughts for the future and what do you expect to happen next yeah i i think um you know if you're imagining yourself as jerome powell reading this report you're very upset um and it's not you know you you didn't think that um you didn't think it was going to be great but you expected to get a negative number that was, and there was pretty significant chance of a large negative number. And instead you got a positive number and it's driven by the kind of core, um, the kind of core inflation that the Fed is supposed to try to manage. I think there's been this dynamic over the last few months where, you know, when, when gas prices were driving inflation a few months ago, Jerome Powell came out and said, we, you know, we have to manage headline inflation because of inflation expectations. I'm going to expect them to come out and say, Hey, Listen, uh, even though gas prices are going down, 
you know, the core drivers of inflation, what we think we have most control over are still rising. Like we're not out of the woods yet and we're not, uh, you know, they're going to try to sound even more tough than they've been sounding over the last few weeks. Um, and I think they're really struggling with this communication problem. I think we saw this especially uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Neil Kashkari, where he came out and said like, hey, we're happy to see the reaction to Jackson Hole, the, the negative reaction from markets, and then kind of had to walk that back. You know, they're trying to toe this line here where they're, they're being tough enough, front-facing that people believe them, uh, meanwhile, they're they're struggling with uh, credibility just because of how much volatility there is in everything. I think that's going to be the critical dynamic to to watch going forward. Thank you much, Joey. Do you got anything you're working on you want to plug? Um, I, you know, I'll plug my newsletter. Like you said at the very beginning of the uh, of the spaces, I basically went full time recently uh, writing my blog, which you could find just in my profile. I'd really appreciate if you consider giving that a read. And I'll be writing something tomorrow morning about all these inflation numbers going into a, a deeper dive on all of the data. Perfect. Thanks again for coming, Joey. Let's kick it over to Last Bear. Final thoughts here. What do you expect to see? Yeah, I mean, I think that to comments earlier, I think that in some ways, obviously, the Fed doesn't want to see inflation at these levels. But at the same time, it if you had seen a really soft print, then that kind of starts to open the door for some softening of language or, um, you know, potentially a pause or a pivot. I think that this, in some ways, it's not good to see, but it makes their job easier in the sense that they're just going to continue with the path, you know, towards a much higher neutral rate um, with rate hikes over the, you know, the coming months. Um, and I think that it sort of solidifies the the short term or sort of, you know, three, three months or so um, as being largely what I think people expected. Perfect. Thank you, Baron. And, uh, you know, per usual, I'm always happy to have you here. Your insight's always really great. Do you have anything you got coming out or you want to plug there? Um, no, if you guys uh, like my stuff, go over to my Twitter page and subscribe to my Substack. But thanks. Thanks again for having me. This is uh, I, I really enjoy uh, being on these panels. It's uh, always a good conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming. I learn a lot on these every single time. Ben, closing thoughts, anything you're looking forward to after this report today? <laughs> well, look, I mean, you're seeing in markets now, it's the higher for longer, recession more likely than not. Uh, if you're looking for something that breaks, you got to look for a place where you've got illiquidity shocks. I'm having a hard time finding where that is, but that's what you want to be looking for. Uh, and the U.S. remains by far the best house in an increasingly crappy uh, neighborhood. And with a still robust jobs market, it's, it's, it, I still think it's a recession, but it's a, it's a, it's a weird recession, right? It's not, it's not like, you know, every war is different, and the next war won't be like the great financial crisis either. Anything you're working on that you want to plug, Ben? Oh, no, we're always doing stuff at Epsilon Theory, so all Epsilon Theory all the time, .com, at Twitter, so um, check it out. Beautiful. Thank you again for coming, Ben. Let's kick her over to Martin. Closing thoughts, anything you got going on? Yeah, um, you know, we've been told not to fight the Fed for a greater part of the last decade, and what are the pundits doing? It's fighting the Fed. And 
and you can't blame uh, you can't blame people. You know, when you've been given a fix for ten years, it's and, and you're addicted to to easing, and you get this environment, um, it makes it very difficult when you're going through that withdrawal, and um, and so there's going to be a lot of risks that we just talked about with uh, with my fellow panelists today. And but the bottom line is, it comes down to how do you make money in this environment? Um, that's what clients are, are paying us for. And, and so you have to think differently and go down the path of, of least resistance. And you got to manage duration risk to be cognizant of it. So how do you make money in a flat market? How do you make money when you have the Fed tightening? Um, it, it's, it's very, very challenging. There's only two segments of the market that were positive this year, uh, energy and U.S. dollars. And, uh, and, and, and the market, and, and pun has been very underweight energy and fortunately overweight U.S. dollars by default. And so, you know, you want to take a, a, a different approach and, and ask yourself, if this time truly is different, how do you make money? And so that's, that's what we're doing. That's the bottom line. Our, I mean, we're positive this year. Our peers are down 15% on balanced portfolios. And, uh, and, and we want to get even more positive in, 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 the, in the year to come. And how do we do that? And, and that's, that's where we're focusing all of our time and energy on. Perfect. Thank you, Martin. And do you have anything you're working on got coming out that you want to plug quick here? Yeah, I write every week for the Financial Post up here in Canada. Um, my my latest piece that, that came out uh, yesterday, I talk about five ways to make money in this kind of environment. So uh, you can find it on my on my Twitter or, or Google search and uh, you'll be able to find some ideas and create ideas how to make some money. Beautiful. Thank you again for coming, Martin. All right, Jim, what you got for us here to wrap us up, man? How are you feeling? <laughs> Two big takeaways. Um, one, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, the Fed matters, but the Fed is, the Fed is going to be raising for some time. They've been telling you that. I think people are under, uh, have been not listening, uh, underappreciating how far they need to go. How uh, you know? So that's not changing. That said, we're entering an election cycle. Uh, I think people are sleeping on that. Uh, that is important for two reasons. One, the Fed doesn't want to be too active during the midterms. So they're not going to go crazy and do something that is going to shake the boat too much. Um, I don't think after the 75 basis points, they'll continue on that path. But I don't, I don't expect something. Uh, they're going to try and, and be consistent. What's more important is politics. Uh, and people aren't thinking about politics. Um, if you look back at, 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 again, the 60s and 70s, the response to more inflation, uh, to, to quell the populist response to inflation, uh, which actually ironically drove it, you end up seeing, and I've been calling for this for the last year and a half, and we've been obviously spot on, we're seeing it globally, we're seeing it here in the US, you're going to see more fiscal responses. They're not going to call them fiscal, right? They're going to actually call it the opposite. They're going to call the Inflation Protection Act, right? Um, they're going to... They're going to do gas tax holidays. They're going to do consumption tax removals, first-time homeowner tax credits, whatever it takes to lower the pressure on the, uh, the voting class and, and the populism. But that stuff ultimately drives more inflation, drives more structural inflation. So be watchful for that. We've been calling for it for the last year. Uh, it's kind of, uh, it's almost impossible to imagine that we know that fiscal is driving inflation, but we continue to respond well, um, with policies, uh, essentially price controls. Again, we know how that played out for Nixon in the 70s, not well. So that's my first big takeaway. Watch politics, not the Fed. That We know what the Fed's doing. Uh, the, the politics is likely to make the Fed's job harder and worse. Next point. 
markets. Uh, in the short term, um, we are approaching a quad witching. Again, people aren't talking about the actual market microstructure. How did, why do we get this big counter trend rally? Why does this keep happening? Uh, you know, because people are short, because there's obvious, as we're talking about this, uh, structural problems that, that are very serious and, and, and big. Uh, two, people are hedging, right? And hedging as uh, hedges are generally located uh, on the quarterly expirations. That's where the biggest volume is, structured products focused on that. As those puts and hedges disappear, the market maker and dealers have to buy back stock. That's what we've seen. And this is a structural, this has been a structural period of strength. Um, because of that, uh, pair with short interest, those, these periods can be very dangerous. That does not mean they are, uh, that we are going to new highs. Uh, these are short uh, covering rallies. These are a function of positioning and smart structure. Uh, as we get past, uh, you know, the, the majority of these Vaughn and Charm flows, which I talk about, uh, have passed. As we get past this quad witching, um, you begin to have more issues here. Um, into September and October. We should find some vol support here. I mean, vol uh, pressure still, like uh, vol is relatively well supplied into this decline. Um, but uh, important to note, we saw vol market up vol up the last several days. That's generally a, a very, uh, very bearish sign. Not surprising. Uh, you know, everybody will point to CPI, but I think, you know, this market was looking for a reason to pull back here um, uh, uh, from a market structure perspective. So that would be my second uh, second point, in terms of us, what we're working on, uh, we have three funds, a long ball fund, two uh, absolute return uh, products, all market neutral or long vol. Uh, I don't think I have to extol the virtues of long vol and hedges in this environment. If anybody's interested, please reach out via kaivolatility.com. And uh, as I mentioned, we put out a big newsletter, uh, which I think you guys mentioned uh, recently about inflation, these structural pressures. Uh, it is 20 some pages. Uh, it is a bit, it's a bit long in the tooth. But I think critical for uh, for people who don't uh, broadly understand where we are, where history has it has been, and where we're likely to go. Perfect. Thank you so much. And and per usual, Jim, thank you again for coming. I can't I can't emphasize enough how great it is having you guys here. Thanks for having us. All right, everybody. Thanks again to everybody on the panel, folks in the audience. If you're not following these folks, please do. They're putting out crucial information education on pretty much a daily basis through their publications, through their Twitter profiles. So please give these folks a follow. If anybody came in late, this was recorded, so it'll be available immediately after here on Twitter and later today as an Unusual Whales podcast. I can't thank you all enough for coming. We'll be back again for an Unusual Whales space next Wednesday, September 21st for the FOMC. Again, thanks everybody for coming, and we'll catch you guys next week. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you all.